0: You're listening to The Revealer Podcast, where we explore how religion shapes our culture and our communities. Produced by the Center for Religion and Media at NYU and hosted by me, Dr. Brett Crutch. Each month, we sit down with experts to discuss the role religion plays in politics, in people's lives, and throughout our world. In today's show, we're discussing sex education in the United States. What role has religion played in shaping sex education in public schools, especially the promotion of sex education? Why have religious leaders been so invested in sex education curriculum? And how has sex education changed over time in response to shifting demographics, the increased visibility of LGBTQ people, and the political rise of the Christian right? Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Revealer Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Crutch. I'm very excited to be chatting today with Dr. Christy Slemensky. She is the author of the new book, Teaching Moral Sex, A History of Religion and Sex Education in the United States. You can read an excerpt from her book, Teaching Moral Sex, in the upcoming September issue of The Revealer at therevealer.org. Hi, Christy. It's great to chat with you. How are you doing today? hi
1: brett thank you so much i'm I'm so excited to talk to you i I love this podcast and i'm excited to, to share a little bit more
0: Great, thanks. So congratulations on writing this great book about the history of sex education and its co-mingling with religion. I want to start with something you say actually on the very first page of the book that may surprise some listeners. So you write that, quote, religious sex educators have shaped the movement for public sex education continuously since its roots in the late 19th century United States. So many people before listening to this may have thought that religiously would have been resistant to sex education in public schools, not some of the initiators and proponents of it. But that is one of the really big takeaways from your book, that many religious leaders wanted sex education in schools. So to start, I'd love it if you could paint a picture for us. Broadly speaking, who were some of these religious leaders who wanted sex education in America's public schools, and why was it important for them to get sex education into the schools?
1: Yeah. Thank you. That's a great first question since I have kind of talked about a 150 year history in my book, so it's hard to know exactly where to start. But uh, in terms of the who, these people were largely liberal Protestants. So they created this really interesting, broad liberal Protestant coalition uh, ranging from some of the more radical liberal Protestants, um, such as the Quakers, who are more abolitionists, uh, Unitarians, who tried to really break from uh, some of the more traditional concepts of, of God, as well as trying to cross different religious uh denominational lines, uh, some of these free religious associations who really were really fighting against uh, denominational divisions and trying to create more of a a unified Christianity. So that was uh, the more radical kind of end of that spectrum, but also the very moderate mainline liberal Protestants, Methodists, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, Congregationalists, even some Baptists, uh, who all kind of wanted to work together um, to to kind of move forward uh, some of these ideas of liberal Protestantism, which largely at the time were about embracing science, for example. Example, to reveal God's truth hmm. so some of the evolution uh, debates of the late 19th century uh, played in here in terms of dividing American Protestantism and the liberal Protestants were very interested in going along and kind of embracing mainstream science uh, and mainstream uh, academic authority to help hmm. them kind of use it to to reveal what they believe God is, is saying about creation whereas the other side of that kind of the the protesters of that the more fundamentalist and um, conservative Christian groups uh, were more the kind of anti-evolution, pro-creationism factions. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was definitely at play, kind of in the background here uh, for the sex education movement. So um, that's kind of the who. Uh, they were really pushing this kind of non-sectarian meaning non-denominational uh, general Protestantism that they viewed as, as universal, which of course it was not. It was it was <laughs> part of their very specific Protestant vision of, of, of kind of joining together to reform society. And they did view schools, like many people in the early 20th century, as you know, the hope for the future. Public hmm. schools were taking off. They were starting to become more common uh, because they saw people as being more scattered. Uh, people were leaving home to go live in the cities. They were no longer, you know, as influenced they thought by the home and even by churches, which they saw as losing some control of young people who moved to the cities and had new influences. Uh, so some of those urban fears were definitely at play here in terms of why the schools they saw as, as this way to shape the next generation into what they wanted. And also this back battleground, of course, for these culture wars that were starting back then between some of the evolution and creationism sides of things. So the schools were a battleground for for multiple things.
0: Great. So, you know, as you said, you cover this really long history now, over 150 years of sex education and, and religious leaders' involvement in it. And I was intrigued by the early history of sex education that you, that you cover, some of which focused in particular on educating young men about preventing venereal diseases. And it seems that what happened, if I understand correctly, and you'll have to correct me if, I, if I'm misunderstanding here, but it seems that what happened is that sex educators, aware that men had often more sexual freedom than women, pushed for sex education that, rather than giving women as much sexual freedom as men, attempted to curtail men's sexual freedom so that it better match the social restrictions women face. So does that sound right? And if so, why was that the goal? Why less sexual freedom for men rather than more sexual freedom for everyone?
1: Yeah. And and these individuals in the late 19th century are some of my most interesting, I think, favorite characters um, because they were progressive in some ways and yet quite conservative in other ways. And so, you know, it really challenges some of our ideas of progressive and conservative because they were combining some of these interesting factors. So these were, I describe them as these Protestant moral reformers of the late 19th century. And the sex educators among them, they were pushing for sexual purity. And so some Mm. of their Talks, you know, sounded very similar to the purity education today of abstinence only, with purity pledges and, and talks mm-hmm. about abstinence. But for them at the time, it was, it was very progressive to be talking about sexuality in the public sphere and to be pushing for people to to, to think about this and to, to make it a public topic. Um, so they were actually kind of breaking some of these boundaries in terms of public discussions of sexuality, which I view itself as, as, as quite progressive for their time. Right. And yet, because many of them were female, they were tied into this idea that their kind of authority at this time came from their moral superiority to men there hmm. was this idea of the late 19th century that these female moral reformers you know were more pure uh, and 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 more religious in, in many ways uh, that they could then guide uh, the, the men of their time in the right direction and so they did want to kind of raise men to their standard raise them on this kind of pillar of purity uh, rather than you know challenge that for women and it create a, a larger sense of women's sexuality and more progressive ideals of, of women's pleasure, unfortunately, <laughs> from kind of today's standards. Yes. Um, so it did kind of rest on that, that idea of the women's moral superiority and their purity, and they viewed it as eliminating the sexual double standard. So for them, this was kind of a feminist endeavor, and many were suffragists of this time to eliminate that sexual double standard and raise the men to their higher level, uh, which they viewed as kind of raising the whole nation to become a... Uh, Better Christian nation, and I would say also that pretty early on, the uh, those who were involved in educating about sexuality started to divide from the more feminist contingent of the birth control movement. Hmm. So by the kind of early twentieth century, there was a separation between kind of the more feminist, more progressive uh, women's proponents uh, who ended up more aligned with the birth control movement, and the sex education movement, which had chosen to kind of align themselves with between the female moral reformers as well as uh, the male scientists. So that's another kind of next phase of that history is that uh, they joined forces with these male kind of scientists and physicians, um, medical men and the moralists, they called them, who kind of came together because one was interested in fighting against prostitution, the purity reformers, Mm -hmm. and the other, the scientists were really interested in, at this time, combating the symptoms of venereal disease, which they viewed as uh, tied to prostitution. So they both saw uh, kind of a joint idea. Idea that, that sex education could solve both the issues of, of anti-prostitution and uh, anti-venereal disease.
0: Interesting. So you titled the book Teaching Moral Sex, and you say that, quote, morality permeated many dimensions of sex education. So you've started us already, but could you give uh, any more examples of how morality shaped sex education?
1: Thank you. Yeah, it is a very slippery term. <laughs> I find it fascinating uh, because sexual morality becomes this kind of quintessential representation of morality more broadly. It's often seen as you know this this ultimate downfall, that if you, you kind of fall into some sexual immorality, then it means that all of your other aspects of morality must also right. be corrupt. Um, yes. So they're, they're seen as, as, as this uh, representation of, of other aspects. And it becomes this mediating concept. I see it as a way that these religious sex educators specifically are kind of trying to translate some of their religious values into the more secular sex education movement, especially once they pair with the more kind of scientifically minded um, physicians and, and, and educators. So this is kind of a way for religion to be there and yet not be super specific that it can kind Mm -hmm. of appeal to a broad variety of people they talked about universal morality quite a bit uh and and it's i I see it as this way that those who are most religious among them the ones that i particularly study have found ways of kind of putting themselves into the sex education campaigns uh, without being super present in their kind of specificity so it's it's religious but it's kind of this this more vague religiosity and the Mm -hmm. way that they translate and speak to the scientists uh, who they are partnering with and within each phase kind of each historical phase of sex education and i follow sex education through its various historical changes and shifts it takes on a different meaning so morality mm. in the late 19th century among these female protestant moral reformers for them it meant you know sexual purity no prostitutes no alcohol you know raising men to the women's sexual standards that we mentioned Uh, In the next phase, when they're trying to get it into public schools in the early 20th century, it takes on this idea of moral education, which had a kind of a broader sense uh, of character development raising good citizens um, mm. with not just facts, but kind of motivation to do good as well as some of these national values. So moral education became kind of the key way in which religion translated itself into uh, that kind of early phase. And then later I trace the shift to family life education when they start to move away from venereal disease education and toward this kind of more positive framework of uh, the family and that sexuality belongs within family life. And so morality is, is then attached to kind of this Judeo-Christian Uh, idea of the family, ideas about good breeding attached to the eugenics movement in some ways. Um, So family life kind of becomes this arbiter of morality uh, within that kind of mid-20th century range. And then by the 1960s, some of those kind of agreed upon principles start to, to kind of break apart a bit. And especially, I trace it to this idea of the new morality, they call it, or situation ethics, which for them meant that we can't just have this absolute morality that's the same for everyone in every exact situation, that with such kind of diversity, because they keep reaching across aisles and including more and more people in their campaigns, that the sex educators wanted to start kind of acknowledging this inclusiveness and idea that um, there's a possibility that any kind of sexual act could potentially be moral, given the right context and and scenario. So even though many of them were still quite conservative in their personal beliefs, and still very much many of them believed in that sexuality belonged within monogamous heterosexual marriages, uh, they kind of at the public stage kind of opened the door to sexual diversity and religious diversity through this idea of the new morality, uh, which was kind of originating from a liberal Protestant uh, theology. And of course then we saw the backlash um, with the opponents of uh, comprehensive sexuality education who insisted upon an absolute morality and uh, really invented abstinence-only education for for the late 20th and now 21st century.
0: Yeah, I want to come back to that backlash, but first I want to ask you about something else that you raised, and that's this idea of monogamy, which, as you mentioned, seemed to have been an especially important goal for many sex educators for quite some time. So why has or why was monogamy such an important goal and way of life that sex educators wanted to instill in adolescence? So, you know, I mean, I ask that because there are many potential goals of sex education. You've talked about some of them, but, you know, communicating one's needs and desires, consent, understanding understanding one's body. There's lots of possible goals. So why has there been such a long-term fixation on monogamy within sex education curriculum?
1: Yeah, within the sources, you know, it definitely is difficult to find a lot of rationale because it's just Hmm. so assumed throughout this history that everyone assumes that that we all agree that that monogamy is somehow the expected standard of human sexuality. Um, And so it's not challenged at at many points, um, especially through most of this history. But I mean, for me, I see it, as mostly about control it's a way to control sexuality it's a way to control bodies so for example they're trying to curb sex outside of marriage in the early phases against venereal diseases of syphilis and gonorrhea against unwanted pregnancies against prostitution which they see as kind of invading some of their home spaces Um, a way of controlling partnering so eugenics movement for example had some influence on the sex ed i would say you know not all sex educators were Eugenics proponents but but many were and some were and and some were involved in both movements and so the idea of kind of having good partnerships meaning usually meaning same religion same race uh, and usually upholding kind of white partners white couples like Christian couples, especially within these movements uh, as kind of the ideal um, marriage that others should look toward. This was kind of common and kind of assumed underneath some of this rhetoric and some of the images that they showed. So for me, it it was a way of kind of control and exerting some of these national ideals and creating some of these national ideals as well Mm -hmm. through, uh, I argue, the sex education movement. For some, you know, managing urban problems, another kind of sense of control here. Uh, and for them, urban problems meant so many things It meant, you know, some of these racial motivations about, against immigrants moving into cities who they blamed for the rampant kind of venereal diseases and they often assumed were, were kind of becoming prostitutes and things like that. So there were a lot of kind of uh, quite racist assumptions going on with, with their discussions of urban problems within the sex mm. education movement. Um, I think, you know, also along with morality, there was this sense also that this was a religious common ground yeah. because these liberal Protestant sex educators wanted to work more broadly with other uh, Christians. So there were some Catholics involved in the sex ed movement, who I find quite fascinating, uh, as well as by kind of the 1920s, 1930s, they started to partner more with reform, kind of more progressive Jewish groups as well. Mm. And so this idea that this was a common interfaith ground, uh, these monogamous husband and wife, heterosexual families, uh, that became a core movement uh, of of their family life education, which was the sex education of the mid 20th century.
0: Yeah, I mean, I suspect your initial gut reaction is right on that it was just assumed that this is the standard and it was already anything not monogamous among the Mormon church in in the 19th century, among Native Americans. There had already been a lot of work to get rid of that and to make that seem sort of not possible. So I wanted to connect to the latter part of what you said about many of these assumptions of, of monogamous heterosexual unions being the assumed standard. Standard, that, you know, so so much of the history of sex education was about heterosexuality and, and encouraging adolescents to then contain sex to marital heterosexual unions. So, did you see or have you seen sex education change as LGBTQ people became more visible? So, has sex education in the United States been able to accommodate sexual diversity beyond heterosexual coupling?
1: You know, I think some versions of comprehensive sexuality education have done excellent work in this area, but it is, you know, really hit and miss. And because we have such a kind of patchwork of sex education programs across the country, Different yeah. states have very different uh, regulations. For example, I'm in Arizona, and we are not allowed to teach about LGBT sexuality within our sex education programs. Wow. We're the only state that just really bans that pretty explicitly. Wow. Um, in other places, I would say that that's come out more in terms of AIDS education, hmm. uh, with the rise of the AIDS kind of epidemic, and unfortunately, that has kind of maintained, I would say, a focus on risk and danger of uh, you know non heterosexual sexuality. Unfortunately, which is similar there to to any kind of sex out of marriage is also deemed dangerous within a lot of programs as a result of the power of abstinence only to kind of shape a lot of our nation's sex education ideas even the most, some of the most comprehensive ones still kind of have this sense of danger, I think, because of their mutual influences on one another, of, of danger of sex outside of marriage. Uh, so it goes back to that monogamy principle as well. Yeah. So unfortunately, I mean, I, I do think you know, there are individual programs and some amazing sex educators who, who do such a great job, but um, unfortunately some of my work focuses more on some of the negative impacts of for example, uh, abstinence only education has shown to have some very negative mm-hmm. messaging because they assume heterosexuality kind of this, as this presumed norm within some of their imagery and, and, and descriptions mm-hmm. that it, it creates a shame and also uh, an invisibility in some cases or a very negative projection of, of danger and um abnormality.
0: Yeah. I'd like to stay with that. So I think probably many of our listeners grew up in the era of abstinence-only sex education. So how did that become so prominent? And then you mentioned that there are a lot of dangers connected to it. So what do you mean by that?
1: Yeah. So let me just give a very brief history. From the 1960s, we saw this rise of a more comprehensive sexuality education, and that was tied with what I mentioned uh, as the new morality, this idea that an absolute morality does not apply in every situation. That maybe you know, certain uh, things uh, outside of monogamy and outside of heterosexuality could potentially be moral. They kind of open that door, uh, and. Also to that, uh, there came a strong opposition, uh, especially organized by some conservative Christian groups, uh, like the Christian Crusade. So, By the end of the 1960s, uh, there was what was known as the Sex Education Battles, which were this really nationwide coordinated effort by groups such as the Christian Crusade, Billy James Hargis was one of the main kind of characters there, um, and they put forth a pamphlet, for example, called Is the Schoolhouse a Place to Teach Raw Sex or something like that. That was really a household name, you know, by the end of the 1960s, because it really slammed comprehensive sexuality education as an anti-god, anti-moral, even communist plot to kind of undermine America as a Christian nation from these kind of conservative Christian perspectives. So it kind of used sexuality as this political tool. It was a way for them to kind of practice using sexuality to to build more conservative Christian coalitions, which myself and several other scholars have argued has helped create the rise of the Christian right in the 1970s and 1980s. And so, you know, with that opposition, they continued to oppose comprehensive sexuality education, but it did become clear that it, it wasn't going anywhere, that schools would have some form of sex education. You know, By hmm. the 1980s, they, they saw this as the reality, so they knew they had to create an alternative version to put into the schools in place of, 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 of the comprehensive sexuality versions. So in the 1980s, we see um, evangelicals uh, aligned with kind of the Christian right, largely, such as Tim LaHaye, for example, wrote a book about sex education is for the family, trying to put forth and abstinence only idea of teaching sex ed within the family and that quickly transitioned to the idea that well it's going to have to be in the schools to replace comprehensive sex ed Mm -hmm. Um, so even if the ideal is the family families are not often equipped and then we need to kind of control what's happening in the schools so they created abstinence only programs right alongside and really overlapping with their creation of kind of a pro-family movement and the purity movement which was an abstinence only larger movement beyond schools so they created these programs kind of inserted them into, into various school systems but really 1996 is the big date when federal funding got behind this this politics and this abstinence-only program in order to give $50 million a year to abstinence-only programs. So that was a huge kind of win. It kind of came out of uh, left field for, for many people. It was seen as a huge blow to comprehensive sexuality education because they really didn't have any federal funding and they remained not having federal funding for, for quite some time until the Obama administration opened up some venues but that federal funding for abstinence-only has remained so consistent, and so much money has, has been poured into abstinence-only since that 1996 uh, movement. So that has really accounted for the popularity because it has had the federal backing, and has continued to be renewed. But yeah, they've they've really emphasized in that federal funding a definition of sexuality and of education as, um, for example, this is a little quote from their definition that there was an emphasis on a mutually faithful monogamous relationship in the context of marriage being the expected standard of human sexual activity. And of course, at this point in 1996, you know, gay marriage was not a legal reality, unfortunately. So um, this meant you know, heterosexual monogamy in marriage, um, really shutting the door to, to sexual diversity and upholding mm-hmm. this as the standard, which made everything else uh, deemed abnormal according to these programs. And they really also emphasized the harmfulness of any type of sex outside of marriage, including LGBT. Uh, iq sex and it, that abstinence was really the only way to avoid sexually transmitted diseases in pregnancies so they really downplayed the the great effectiveness of, of condoms and other contraceptives and actually banned that from being taught within the school so you couldn't talk about condoms except to talk about their ineffectiveness so not only you know were there, are there i think dangerous messages of, of assuming this uh accepted standard that everyone accepts the same standard of sexual activity and, and really really demonizing kind of all other versions of, of sexual diversity. Uh, but it also creates real health inequities for mm. you know, um, sexual minorities, because this has an influence not only on the ideas people hear in the classroom, but also it kind of overlaps other fundings for real reproductive health care for, for, for women and others and huh. um, other aspects of, kind of our health and, and, and also mental health, because there's been studies showing that you know, some of these messages can be quite damaging uh, in terms of the mental health for LGBTIQ uh, youth.
0: Yeah. So given that so much of what you've said today, that the history of sex education in this country has roots in instilling particular Protestant values as universal ones, trying to instill in children how to be, quote unquote, moral citizens through their sexual decisions. Do you think sex education should still have a place in the public schools? And if so, having studied this history, what recommendations might you make going forward?
1: Yeah. So I definitely, you know, as an academic, I mean, I do support the scientific studies that that show that comprehensive sexuality education can have really great, you know, positive impacts on people. It it talks about consent, it talks about relationships, and talks much more broadly about aspects of relationship and and people's bodies. Um, So I I do, you know, firmly support comprehensive sexuality education in in many of its forms. There's, of course, some diversity there, but some programs are quite impressive in in their discussions of of what human sexuality looks like, Uh, across the spectrum. Um, but, you know, I think early sex educators knew it quite well that the kids are going to learn from somewhere right now. Probably the Internet is, is a big source or from experimentation or from peers who know much less. It's, it's pretty shocking what a lot of people don't know about sexual facts. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think it is better. and they, they thought it was better. And that was one of their early arguments from the early you know, 20th Hmm. century, um, that we need sex education because, you know, they're going to learn it elsewhere and they're going to learn it poorly. So we need to teach them from, you know, good, reputable sources. And that's remained a pretty consistent argument for sex education in the schools since that's a way where we can kind of control at least some of the sources of what they're getting. Um, For my recommendations, I mean, I do really see a problem with tying the success of sex education and the goals of sex education to sexual behavior, you know, I don't think we do that with a lot of our other, our other topics in education. Hmm. We don't, you know, judge math by how well we do our taxes, which <laughs> pretty poor, I think. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, we, I think, valuing sexual education information in itself, you know, encouraging well-informed students would be really valuable. And, and we haven't, I think, fully or, or really much at all done that, I think, because we've had such this preoccupation with sexual behavior, which I do think, you know, ties back to some of our preoccupation with morals and mm-hmm. um, you know, the concerns about venereal diseases, you know, now uh, sexually transmitted infections, mm-hmm. and um, unwanted pregnancies as well. So, you know, I do have a mixed view on some of these current trends of comprehensive sexuality education and legislation toward more evidence-based assessments, while Evidence-based tends to be great for valuing you know, scientific studies and encouraging more comprehensive approaches generally, because those tend to be the more evidence-based approaches that we've had so far. Several abstinence-only have kind of proven to be effective on certain measures, but 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 broadly, it still remains um, that the comprehensive versions are more effective on multiple measures. Uh, but these evidence-based assessments are still usually largely focused on actions and sexual behaviors, and not just on whether the students learn. Mm. And that, you know, I just I see as a big problem since right. a student could learn very little about sexual anatomy or, or reproduction and yet be viewed as a success. You know, if they just don't have sex, whereas someone mm-hmm. who knows a lot and chooses to have sex or maybe involuntarily, you know, does not choose to have sex and has a sexual encounter through rape or some other method. You know, mm-hmm. They're deemed a failure by these me- methods. Um, and that, that's, I think, really problematic um, by some of these large scale assessments at the, at the federal level toward you know funding and who gets the funding. I would also add information on, you know, sexual trauma, sexual pleasure. I think some of those things don't get Mm -hmm. a whole lot of attention even in some of the more comprehensive programs, especially sexual pleasure. There's been a lot of, I think, hesitancy toward that and it's still not found its place, I think, in in many uh, versions. Um, I did uh, do a year, for example, of Uh, high school within a German gymnasium, uh, uh, a year of high school there. And and they had sex education, you know, starting, I think, with age 11. Uh, And they Mm. had it every other year. And it was much more focused on sexual pleasure and, and kind of not on sexual shame. And I I found Hmm. that messaging to be very different and and also very refreshing um, and and a stark difference to how we approach it in the United States.
0: Right. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you for those recommendations and for this interesting conversation. I really appreciate it. That is all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Christy Slomensky. You can find an excerpt from her book, Teaching Moral Sex, a History of Religion and Sex Education in the United States, in The Revealer's upcoming September issue at therevealer.org. And you can purchase Teaching Moral Sex wherever you currently buy books. I'm Brad Crutch. I hope you'll join us for our next episode next month. We'll be exploring religion and the climate crisis. In the meantime, I hope you stay safe and healthy. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Revealer Podcast with music by Kevin McLeod and production editing by Anna Donch. If you want to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at therevealerpodcast at gmail.com and check us out at therevealer.org.